1: right and welcome everybody to another episode of the talking space podcast this is talking space episode 429 for the week of monday september 17th 2012 i'm sawyer rosenstein and joining me tonight is gene McCulka. welcome gene
2: good evening sawyer it's gonna be one heck of a show we're gonna be all packed up
1: yes indeed and welcome as well mark ratterman howdy Sorry, it's it's short and simple
0: tonight. I'm, I'm at a loss for words. No, not really, but let's go ahead anyway.
1: <laughs> okay, uh, we'll see in a little bit that none of us are going to be at a loss for words as we start getting into these stories. And speaking of getting into these stories, let's go ahead and get it started with some manned spaceflight news. And let's start off, of course, with the most recent event in terms of our recording date, and that occurred last night, which was Sunday, September 16th. The crew aboard the Soyuz TMA-04M undocked with the International Space Station and at approximately 10.50 p.m. Eastern Time last night safely parachuted back down and landed in Kazakhstan. The crew of three, of course, being Gennady Padalka, Sergei Revin, and U.S. astronaut Joe Acaba. Now, Gennady Padalka, who was the commander of that mission, which the mission itself spent 123 days aboard the ISS, 125 in space, now has a total of 711 days in space, making him number four all time in terms of length, and also the only person ever to command three ISS missions.
2: Lucky dog. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, wow! Um, there's there's a gentleman that can tell you a thing or two about uh, about spaceflight. Uh, that is that's going to be a record that's going to stand for uh, for quite some time.
0: Yeah, think of the incredible resource that kind of experience gives the uh, Russian space program too.
2: And not to forget, I think it's going to give us a little bit of, of a of a lesson as well. Um, Gennady Padalka uh, has flown on on shuttle and. As well um, as uh, as Soyuz, and uh, you know who knows what uh, what other vehicle. If he's, uh, you know, hopefully these other new vehicles as they come online, uh, he'll be flying on board those too. And I'm sure that the experience that he has will, will also be built into the design of those vehicles.
1: Just so everybody knows, the person who currently holds the record for the most time in space is Sergei Krikalev, who has over 803 days in space. And in terms of a female, that's Peggy Whitson, who has over 376 days.
2: And speaking of uh, women in space, Sawyer, we have a new ISS commander, don't we?
1: Yes, we do. New commander of the International Space Station is U.S. astronaut Suni Williams. And that is the Expedition 33 crew. And they should be up there for a couple more months as well. Alrighty then. So on top of the Soyuz deorbiting from the International Space Station and landing safely, there was another craft that undocked from the International Space Station not designed to return in one piece. In fact, (laughs) designed to break up into many pieces. And that was the Japanese resupply ship, which was the Japanese HTV-3 that undocked from the international space station on September 12th and then went into earth's atmosphere and burned up successfully yeah i think sorry where, where did where did that thing impact i know
2: i know it was somewhere in the indian ocean basically that that's essentially where seems to be where everybody's that seems the indian ocean just seems to be one big spacecraft graveyard because um, so that's essentially where all the uh, the shuttle external tanks basically uh, broke apart, too. But I think that's where HTV-3 eventually ended up. And I think they basically went ahead and packed that thing up with all the garbage they could find on board the ISS and, and bid it farewell, and, and it did its work. That's essentially, too, what uh, I believe the uh, orbital sciences vehicle, the Cygnus, which I believe is still scheduled for later this year, um, is also designed to do. Uh, it will carry cargo up, but uh, it is designed to uh, essentially break up in, into the atmosphere. So, um, again, getting rid of a lot of <laughs> getting rid of a lot of trash on board the ISS. Um, you know, you you've, you know, I I I know you know for those of you who live in small little houses like 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 I do, um, getting rid of uh, a lot of uh,
1: unwanted stuff is uh, is definitely a good thing. <laughs> uh, I, I just want to add here that it did not go according to plan originally when it was released on Wednesday on the 12th. They released it from the space station's robotic arm and then it fired its thrusters and it automatically commanded an abort on board because there was a major problem which is usually done so that way it doesn't actually smash into the International Space Station. The abort was successful, did exactly what it was supposed to do, and then it Stayed there until it deorbited Friday night of the 14th, eventually officially deorbiting early Saturday morning, Eastern time.
0: Speaking of thrusters, I just found a little note here that uh, this was just prior to uh, to release from the station and then the reentry. But uh, they had their primary attitude control thrusters, but the backup thrusters were not available. I don't know if anybody remembers that. But uh, it says there was a failure that occurred before berthing to the ISS. So the deorbit was done with the primary thrusters and apparently with no working backup. Little loss of redundancy didn't stop the uh, mission.
1: Nope, it stayed aboard the ISS for 47 days. Should also add on top of carrying up supplies and things to the crew, as well as disposing of some unneeded items, it also delivered five CubeSats.
2: And those are beginning to be uh, be the rage. The cube sets. Uh, it's getting to the point where you know you and I could probably go ahead and uh, and build one. And if we wanted to go ahead and launch it, we could theoretically you know, book a you know a you know a, a Falcon 9 or or something like uh, you know something like a uh, an HTV or something like that for for you know for you know you know really really. A song compared to what it would be to to launch a standard satellite. So uh, it would be probably it's a big breakthrough for a lot of uh, uh, universities and colleges and and even heck even high schools at some point if they want to go ahead and launch experiments. And they come down too. They come down really fast and burn up in the atmosphere. So you know you don't have a lot of you know space junk. Uh, They don't leave a a space junk uh, footprint behind. So uh, good stuff and good, good alternative for science.
1: Indeed, and maybe on a future episode, we might end up talking about getting experiments into space. But we'll see. (laughs) Alrighty then. So continuing along still with International Space Station news, I'm going to turn it over to Mark for a race that Usain Bolt probably couldn't even win because I don't think he can run at five miles a second, can he?
0: Did somebody say ready, set, go? Well, how about this? I saw this in the Marshall Star, a publication from Marshall Space Center in Huntsville, Alabama, And uh, it has to do with the first-ever Race in the Station Duathlon. And it's going to be held September 29th. It's the uh, first-ever by the Marshall Association. Starts at the Marshall Space Flight Center, Building uh, 4316. I guess you have to go past 4,315 before you get to that one. Starts at 8.30 in the morning. Participants will run, bike, and, and run again to race the space station as it completes one Earth orbit. The station circles the earth every 91 minutes, 12 seconds, and the duathlon committee will track the starting location of the ISS at the race start, and those who beat the laboratory before it orbits the world will be given a small prize. It's open to the public. cost is $35 for one person, $60 for a two-person relay team. Registration is available online until the 28th of September, and will be capped at 300 racers. If three people are interested in participating as individual racers, and they all work for the same organization, agency, company, they can form a team. And the fastest aggregate times for the team division will also receive prizes. The uh, current space station crew will provide some pre-recorded statements from the station to be played at the opening ceremony. And uh, anyone that doesn't have access to the Redstone Arsenal will be permitted to register but must be a U.S. citizen. I think it's pretty cool. The first 175 racers receive a free T-shirt, and the graphic on it's pretty cool. It uh, looks like a rocket with legs and a two sets of legs and a bicycle wheel uh, in the middle with the legs in the front and the back. And, of course, flames out the back of the rocket and the ISS approaching from the 11 o'clock position and uh, racing the station 2012. I think it's pretty cool.
2: Oh, dude, we got to go ahead and get a picture of that uh, that T-shirt up on the up on the website. That sounds really, really neat. And um, I'll tell you, if I were were uh, in the uh, Redstone area and I lived in around the Huntsville area, I'd, I'd jump at this. Even though I'd, I'd probably, you know, definitely in the shape I'm in right now, trust me, the ISS would probably beat me.
1: <laughs> Indeed, that sounds really cool, and we'll see if we can get some more information on that for sure. That's, that sounds fun. Do you know the, the actual distance that they're going to have to travel to beat the station?
0: The description of the course is uh, in three parts. They're going to have run, and then bike, and then run. The first run segment is 3.14 kilometers, or 1.95 miles. The second segment is biking 23 kilometers, or 14.3 miles. And the last run segment is another 3.14 kilometers another 1.95 miles total distance for the course is 18.2 miles the uh, run course is very flat which uh, that would be good for me if I was trying to run or bike on anything (laughs) Uh, sorry I'm not a uh, not an athlete in that sense of the word anyway the bike course has a few small hills but overall it's very flat as well so it sounds sounds fun sounds like a a good distance for somebody that uh, that wants to do a little Oh, have a little fun, and then can even set it up
1: as a relay event. That just sounds so cool. And again, I don't think any of us here are athletes, other than athletes at getting out great news stories to you. Alrighty then. So we're just about done with our first trip around the table, but before we do, we need to head back up to the International Space Station, or at least a delay about getting back up to the International Space Station with Jean.
2: Yeah, this was reported by uh, the uh, folks over at SpacePolicyOnline.com. This was reported today, and they are parroting back an ITAR-TAS report basically saying that Russia is indicating that there is going to be a delay in the next launch of a Soyuz crew out to the International Space Station uh, due to some sort of defect, which has not been – they haven't really uh, been – very good in explaining what this defect is, Um, but according to what I'm reading here, and I will quote the article directly, quote, uh, Russia's official news agency, ITAR-TAS, is reporting today, the launch of the next International Space Station crew will be delayed because of a defective instrument in the uh, the Soyuz TMA-06M spacecraft. Um, I guess this falls under the heading of better that you find out now that you have a faulty instrument on the ground than you are in the air. And again, this is sort of alluding to Mark, if you recall, with Endeavour's final flight, that one particular uh, uh, little malfunction that they found that uh, delayed the launch a little bit. But, uh, again, I believe uh, it was uh, either Mike Moses or Mike Leinbach saying something to that effect. But, uh, once again, it's better off that you find out that you've got something that could bite you uh, here on the ground than finding out about it while you're aloft. So, uh, the delay, uh, the planned launch was, uh, according to the article here, was October 15th. Sorry, uh, in our uh, pre-show conversations, you had a date of October 17th. Uh, so it was probably anywhere between the 15th and the 17th, somewhere within that that launch window. Um, now, according to what I'm reading, that uh, the next launch will be no earlier than October 20th. That's going under the pretext that uh, whatever this defective device is is replaced and and tests normal. Um, so again, we're just going to go ahead and head and and just watch this and and see how this all turns out and uh, we'll wish the next crew uh, to the ISS a a success. And um, I believe uh, this particular crew and this particular um, Soyuz will be carrying uh, NASA astronaut Kevin Ford up to the International Space Station.
1: Alrighty then. So again, as always, safety first. Because the Soyuz with its issues that it's been having even with the unmanned, I I think it's safest.
2: Yeah, and this again, you know, this alludes, Sawyer, to a conversation we had, uh, oh good lord, last year. Um, this is again why you don't go ahead and tout your reliability record. Um, you know, again the conversation we had. You know, Atlantis's APUs weren't even called, and they were. T- you know, the, the Russians were touting the era of reliability. Well, you know, this is why you don't say
1: anything about that. And with that, that brings us to the end of our first trip around the table. And as we start the second trip around the table, and it comes back to myself, we are going to stick with an era. Except, rather than the era of reliability, we're talking about the end of an era. Can you believe that this time next year, we will have no space shuttle stories at all? Because all the shuttles will be in their respective museums. That's amazing that in less than a year, this topic will be non-existent. But in the meantime, it still exists and it is the Space Shuttle Endeavour's ferry flight to its new home, the California Science Center. As we reported last week, the scheduled takeoff was for Monday the 17th, which is today's recording date, and as of this recording date, it has been delayed two days due to weather. The new date for the ferry flight is scheduled to start its trek on Wednesday the 19th, which will be this release date, and from there, it will make its way throughout the United States, as we mentioned last week, going over Mississippi and Houston and New Orleans and El Paso and White Sands, and then landing at Edwards Air Force Base for an overnight stay, and then, of course, as we mentioned before, it would go over multiple destinations in California, to be more specific, it will be flying over Sacramento, San Francisco and Los Angeles before landing late morning at LAX. And I should add that the final arrival date is only one day delayed than the original. So, two day takeoff delay, only one day difference in landing.
0: Kind of interesting uh, at the Discovery Departure event where we were able to talk to some of the uh, managers with NASA, I asked a question about the weather when they, they heard that Endeavour was scheduled for September. I said, September's not necessarily real predictable weather-wise here in Florida. And of course, I was thinking of tropical weather, which we've had some effects of, none major, but we've sure had plenty of uh, unsettled weather and rain and deluges and such where I live. But uh, this is just plain old weather between here and there, which is going to impact Florida today and tomorrow before their planned departure. So that's one of those things. That's one one of the things that used to frustrate me about Uh, seeing some private pilots. Some pilots that I have seen, not talked to, not that I know, but just I get the impression that sometimes they look at, well, I need to get from point A to point B, and I'm on a schedule, and I need a break in the clouds, and off we go. And uh, you can't fly safely, and of course, NASA knows quite well how to fly a shuttle across the country safely. And this is one of those things that the weather doesn't give you the luxury of of knowing exactly what's going to happen more than sometimes even a few hours out. And a few days is certainly much more reliable in forecasting. And uh, that's what uh, has happened now. And it's probably a surprise, but not too big a surprise to the experts that have put this together time and time again as they've ferried the orbiters from coast to coast.
2: I'm just happy that one of the stops is going to be Ellington Air Force Base where I believe a, an orbiter has, has stopped off before but um, it's going to give uh, some folks in the Houston area an opportunity to see the bird and uh, you know sending endeavor out to, to uh, California or you know, really any orbiter you know they, they kind of <laughs> that opens up the old wound of of, uh, of Houston not getting an orbiter but at least they'll We'll go ahead and be able to see uh, see Endeavor before uh, before she takes off for her new home, um, and and Mark, you we we talked about this last week. A lot of the preparation that was involved um, to get uh, Endeavor out to uh, to California and to bring her from LAX to. Uh, the California Science Museum. So, um, you know, if anybody's interested, Mark had a really cool explanation as far as a lot of the preparation of, you know, clearing the trees and things like that. We covered that last week. So, if anybody's interested, take a take a take a peek at that. Um, uh, some good uh, uh, some good pie play there, and and some good information. Um, but yeah, so you're absolutely right. This is sort of the end of end, end of an era. Um, the last time that we're ever really going to see an orbiter aloft. We're not going to see an orbiter fly after this. After this, so uh, I believe the uh, uh, the shuttle uh, carrier aircraft is also going to be decommissioned at the end of this. If uh, you know, I'll throw that out there. If I'm not mistaken, I'm not too sure what its final fate is going to be. I'll have to go ahead and look that
0: up.
1: Well, with the other shuttle carrier aircraft, we already know that parts of that are going to also be used to help with the spacecraft that has Sofia on it, which is a telescope on board a 747.
2: Yeah, it's, that's that's true, uh, but I'm just wondering what the uh, what the other aircraft is is what's going to happen to that one. Um, but yeah, so here again, it's the end of an era. Uh, we have one more uh, one more orbiter to take care of, and that's Atlantis, and that's going to happen in November, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and uh, if anybody's interested, I believe uh, KSC has got some tickets that uh, are available for that. There are several packages, so you might want to go ahead and check out the the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Center website. If anybody's interested, but, uh, um, again, this is really, really, this is really it. A lot of interesting things happening at KSC with the, uh, 21st century ground support program, uh, the VAB getting, you know, a, a good, uh, uh work over the, uh, two crawlers, uh, getting a lot of, uh, TLC, even the, the, the launch pads getting some good TLC. So, um, so th- this is the end, but it's also a, a possibility for new
1: beginnings yes indeed and it's uh, i it's, i'm still speechless that we're at the end of it but it, it all good things must come to an end and it's time for the shuttle to do the same and get some great homes and some great museums where people the public can get to experience it's all that we got to see while it was operational because these vehicles up close are amazing and if What the Intrepid Sierra and Space Museum did with theirs is any indication of how some of these are going to turn out. If any of the others are even more amazing, then they are going to be phenomenal. And I cannot wait to see all of these.
2: Yeah, uh, sorry, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Endeavor is supposed to be displayed uh, vertically. Um, Discovery, of course, is in a configuration as if she just landed. Uh, Enterprise, I believe, will will also be displayed that way.
1: Uh, Enterprise is currently displayed. That way, with two of the three wheels on the ground, the nose gear on stilts up off the ground to appear as if it's landing.
2: Right, and I believe, uh, sorry, that, that's going to be the final configuration when she moves over to her new home and, and, and new building that, you, that the, uh, the Intrepid is uh, constructing.
1: Right, but that's not for another two, three years. But in its current location on board the flight deck of the Intrepid, that's exactly how it's positioned. And that's how they're hoping to position it, if not even more dramatic in the future. Like you're saying, Discovery's flat, Endeavor's going to be vertical, and is Atlantis still planned to be suspended?
2: Yep, that's the game plan for Atlantis. She's going to be suspended up there, as if she were uh, as if she were in orbit. So um, that is going to be a <laughs> that's also going to be rather breathtaking to look at. So again, all three of them are going to be displayed rather rather nicely, and uh, we will uh, have great homes, I'm sure. You mean four? Four, I stand corrected. <laughs>
1: All right, so as we mentioned, Endeavor is going to be flying on its way to California over a couple of days, stopping off at a couple of different airports. And on its way, usually planes don't always fly direct; they usually go by waypoints. And uh, I bet you our FAA expert here can explain a little bit more about that and some really interesting waypoints.
0: I'll give it a shot. And everybody, keep in mind, I'm an electronics technician. I'm not a pilot. I'm not an air traffic controller. I'm not a flight uh, service specialist. I'm not a uh, I'm not one of the folks that sets up these navigation uh, routes f- that go across the country in a map that you would find absolutely confusing, like the one I'm looking at if you were to to take a look at it and, and plan your point A to point B travel. But on, along the lines of these waypoints, these navigation fixes, the FAA has done something to commemorate September eleventh. 2001 in a very unique way. And what they've done is some of the arrivals and departure routes that are commonly used out of DCA, Ronald Reagan Washington National Airport, they've taken these uh, waypoints and nav fixes and named them in such a way that it commemorates the victims of 9-11 and it honors the U.S. soldiers that have served in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I want to read you the story that I read on one of our uh, internal uh, internal websites within the FAA. And it was also posted on a uh, White House blog page. But I'm going to start out with this. September eleventh, 2012. On a late Saturday morning, Delta Airlines flight from Detroit Metro Wayne County Airport to Ronald Reagan Washington National Airport on September 1st, pilot came over the public address system and started to share information on the landing procedure with the passengers as the pilot started their precision descent into the capital area the pilot read off the names of the satellite waypoints they would be passing through before the plane's arrival now typically these waypoints and this is my own uh, explanation these waypoints have alphabetic uh, strings of characters that some can be pronounced and some you have to you have to just spell out but what i'm going to do is give you the english Type phrasing of what how you would say the waypoint and then i'll go back in and pick a few of them and i'll spell them out letter by letter so you'll see how creative and i think how special a job the faa folks did on this but the waypoints en route to dca is honor bravery courage morale pledge we will never forget september 11th always freedom Now, they've also got some uh, waypoints for an arrival that comes in from a different direction from the southwest in this case, and the waypoints are named USA. We do support our troops. And depending on runway configuration, aircraft might pass through waypoints named Stand, Together, or Let's Roll, Victory, and Hero. And to spell some of these out for you, Honor is H-O-N-N-R. Courage, C-O-U-R-G. September 11th is S-E-P-L-L. But when you see it in lowercase, it'd be September 11th. Always is A-L-W-Y-Z. Freedom, F-R-D-M-M. Troops is T-R-U-P-S. Let's, L-E-T-Z-Z. Roll, R, followed by four L's. Victory, V-C-T-R-Y, Hero, H-E-R-O-O. So, this was also picked up and posted on the uh, White House blog, and it's cross-posted from the USDOT. And these these waypoints are uh, using satellite navigation, gives the aircraft, uh, airlines some more efficient routes, and the FAA, the air traffic controllers industry themselves have all collaborated to uh, make this come together. And one of the FAA managers, upper level in the organiz- part of the organization that I'm in, made a comment on the, uh, on the FAA blog, said, for individuals that were part of this Metroplex design and implementation team, thank you so much for all your hard work. You've accomplished so much in short order, and I'm so proud of this body of work. It truly has special meaning. And I think this is something that has folks within the FAA quite proud too, me as well.
2: Wow, um, we talked about this pre-show, and um, I think we all sort of agreed that this had to go up there um, with this program tonight, um, given what last week was. And to be honest, I got a little, I got some goosebumps because. Uh, uh, so you and I we, we live in the in the New York area and that whole day had you know a real meaning for a lot of us around here we those who I uh, mean you and I you, you don't come in contact with somebody uh, that hasn't been touched by that event I, I thought about all of the people that I know personally that had you know either been in the city at the time or unfortunately lost people or was uh, was affected by that and um wow, all I'm going to say is that just, you know, it, it just chokes you up a little
0: bit. Well, you're not alone. Uh, you know, I've, I'm familiar with the story I've, I've read over it several times, and I knew that I needed to be careful to, to say it well so people would understand this. But in the uh, FAA article, it says that a passenger on that flight that I referred to at the start, can you imagine being on that plane and hearing this for the first time? I mean, th- this isn't ordinary. And, and before September 11th, people's minds tend to be knowing what's coming in a few days or a week. And, and, but anyway, a passenger that was on that flight recalled the experience and said that as the pilot was reading the waypoints, people were very quiet. They stopped talking, reading, everyone was listening. And then the pilot started to get choked up. He talked about how proud he was to read those points as he entered D.C.,
2: Amen.
1: So we go from something kind and touching, and something that really just brings a smile to you after all that tragedy, to a tragedy of its own. Gene,
2: oh boy, yeah. Um, well, it looks like you know we were talking about the NASA budget uh, a while back ago, and uh, some of the things that are that are going to going to happen with it, and so on, and how important a steady state um, for the budget currently uh, in order for NASA to go ahead and achieve everything on its plate right now well unfortunately as of January 2nd uh, of next year NASA stands to lose according to an article that I'm looking at at from uh, Spaceflight Now dated September 16th uh, NASA stands to lose about 1.5 billion dollars unless Congress goes ahead and acts to reduce the budget uh, budget deficits by the end of the year. And really, the outlook is, is bad for both military and for, uh, and for NASA programs. Uh, we are talking about a, um, an 8.2% reduction in the NASA budget. Um, to give you some of the, uh, the numbers here, um this would uh, net a uh, basically a cut of about uh, uh, 346 million dollars from the exploration program that would also include the uh, the Orion multi-purpose crew vehicle the uh, space Launch system and by the way the CCI cat program that would also be trimmed by about 309 million dollars it would uh, basically save about uh, in total of about according to the uh, the article here would net about a four hundred and seventeen million dollar savings from NASA's science budget. So again, we're talking about taking money out of there too. Um, it, you know again, so this this is not good. Um, Sawyer, you and I had some some discussion about that before uh, before coming on and and uh, you know I'm gonna be talking about a story later um, on how important again, a steady stream, a steady state budget is, but uh, this ain't good (laughs) by any stretch of the imagination.
1: No, I mean, it's not like the SLS and, you know, that entire program, whatever it's called now, it's not like that has a good rap to begin with. I mean, it started off in 2003, obviously, with President Bush saying, we need to end the shuttle program and come up with something new. NASA did that until what they had, the Constellation Program, was canceled in 2010. There's strike number one. Now, as we're trying to get it started now, there goes some of the budget for it. Strike number two. What is strike three? I hope we don't find out, and I hope we get a spacecraft out of it, but at this rate, who honestly knows? I I mean, it's scary, the, the amount of funding that it's getting for the amount of work that needs to be done.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, um, to merge a, a story that we're going to talk about here in a, in a little bit, um, there was a, a, a hearing out on uh, Capitol Hill this week uh, concerning the status of the Orion multi-purpose crew vehicle and the space launch system, and uh, the re- NASA representatives in front of uh, Congress testified that they are currently on track, and they will continue to be on track um as long as we have a steady state in the budget, if that fluctuates again, that's going to set things back. And uh, again, it looks like that fluctuation may happen if Congress doesn't get their act together and, and stop, you know, politicizing the uh, the budget overall. Um, you know, both the executive branch and the legislative branch can get their their act together and basically work out some kind of deal. Um, this is this is going to get really really bad.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's, it's that's, unfortunately those are the best words for it. It's going to get very, very bad. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know,
2: you've given this agency a portfolio of work, but you can only say, well, all right, fine. You're only going to get you know X amount of dollars to do it. Well, it may not be possible to do it with the dollars that you already have now. According to what I heard during that testimony, and we'll get in that a little later. The money currently is there, but if you have you know a budget decrease or an unexpected decrease that is really going to go ahead and impact uh, you know delivery of, of either the, the space Launch system or the Orion or both and it's going to set schedule schedules back and so on. So again you, you've got to go ahead and give, the agency if you're gonna go ahead and say, okay, NASA, you gotta do X, Y, and Z, give it the money to do X, Y, and Z, don't nickel and diamond. And unfortunately it looks like we're we're playing games again. And uh, you know, either either take a few things off the plate or, you know, give NASA the budget it needs to do its job.
0: You know what's irritating? You know at some point in the future there's gonna be some politicians or critics in the media that are gonna Look at NASA and say, see, here you are. You're behind schedule. You're over budget. You were given this one simple thing to do, or they'll be talking about one particular uh, issue, one particular project, whatever. They'll say, you had this one thing to do, and you couldn't do it on time. See, see, see? That's the problem with government. And yet the cause for the whole thing is the lack of resources and lack of support. And we've talked about that before. Get the, the U.S., Political machine has to get behind NASA for them to do the job on the pennies that they've been given to do. They got to at least given, you know, that 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 cent, as opposed to way, way, way less than that, and it keeps going down. It seems like.
2: Yeah, Mark. Again, you you just hit it right on the head. And uh, again, either either give the agency um, the money it needs to do the job and do the job well. Um, again, Mark, I think you, you kind of outlined too what happened to Constellation. It uh, it basically, you know, everybody's saying, well, it was you know eight eight billion dollars behind behind uh, uh, in the budget and so on. Well, the James Webb Telescope is also <laughs> about eight billion dollars behind. Um, but uh, you know, again, you've basically got to go ahead and say, hey, give this project what it needs to be a success. And I don't know if we're doing that. And I guess, I guess ultimately this country has going to make a decision: do we want to have a robust space program or or not? And I don't think we've we've really really sorted that one out.
0: It's a tough one because you know you, you think about the uh, the real big high-profile missions, the the ones that are very very expensive, James Webb Space Telescope, the SLS, you know whatever. But there's also the absolutely phenomenal, less expensive missions that are are the ones that are gonna get hit by this. The the ones that are a hundred million dollars or the ones that are I don't even know the numbers. I can't give you examples. I hadn't thought about this that far out. But the ones that don't cost that much money that get crossed off the list, delayed, delayed, or eliminated, you know, and gosh darn, it it, <laughs> it ain't right. It's so unwise it's incredible that the uh, the powers that be can't see the error of their ways
2: again the, the, this agency could be an economic engine that can help the economy and so on and not go ahead and burn money um, it, we we don't spend again we've said this so many times up there on this program that we don't spend a dime up there in space it's all spent down here so you know again I, if, if we realize that then maybe we can we can go forward but I'm pessimistic.
0: I thought that was my job to be pessimistic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm usually sour grapes and bah humbug and this'll never work and I find myself without much to add.
1: <laughs> well there you don't you're not allowed to be the only one sometimes. <laughs> Next Yeah, sometimes we gotta switch it up, so let's switch it up to some happier news, right? Wrong. We're we're, we're going to stick with more of congressional fun and funness <laughs> related to that, right, Gene? Fun?
2: And um, no, not exactly,
1: sir.
2: <laughs> well, actually, there is a silver. There is a little bit of a silver lining here. Last week, uh, there was a, a, a congressional hearing uh, concerning both the status of the uh, the Space Launch System and the Orion multi-purpose crew vehicle and how things are moving along. Uh, one of the uh, individuals uh, testifying was uh, uh, NASA's uh, Dan Dumbacher, who is the uh, Deputy Associate Administrator for um, Exploration Systems and Development, um, basically said that both uh, SLS and Orion are on target. Uh, Orion is still scheduled to uh, have its test flight in 2014. Um, this will be not only a test, test of uh, the Orion's recovery capabilities um, as far as its reentry and so on, but also of NASA's recovery capabilities to make sure that they can recover the spacecraft safely and efficiently. Um, the SLS is also on target for a, uh, a 2017 launch possibility, unpiloted. Um, the scary part of the whole thing is that the next piloted launch of a NASA vehicle will be in 2021. Um, that's when they expect the, uh, the Orion multipurpose crew vehicle to be launched via the space launch system. Now, keep in mind, um, the last vehicle launched by NASA piloted was in 2011, which was Shuttle Atlantis uh, STS-135. Uh, and we're talking about a 2021 launch with a NASA-sponsored crew. So, again, and uh, Dan Dumbacher warned that this is predicated on a steady-state budget, meaning that no changes happen. If, you know, if you have a budget cut, it is really, really going to going to affect things uh, and affect delivery and schedule and so on. The other interesting point he made was with electronics components. Now, uh, we all know that uh, you know, the same transistors and resistors and things like that that are put inside a spacecraft uh, have to be radiation-hardened and so on. Um, there isn't a real big demand for radiation-hardened components, so NASA unfortunately has to go ahead and outsource all of that. And when he say, says outsource, I'm not exactly too sure what that means. I'm hoping it doesn't mean that we have to go to a foreign source for that. But uh, there isn't a lot of demand for for radiation hardened components, and it's making parts very, very difficult to find, and 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 so on. So again, that's a pipeline that's that could be a red flag in the Orion and SLS development. Also, the the the, the silver lining in this whole thing is they are finding some really good and really really bright kids right out of college, you know, engineers and. And uh, and so on that really, really want to work and they want to work hard and they, they're highly motivated. But as uh, Mr. Dumbacher warned, they also like to finish things. So, again, there's a lot of red flags here, but there's also some some hope. So keep your fingers crossed. Um, I'm still kind of kind of shocked about the timelines between, you know, here and 2021. But, you know, it is what it is. And, again, if we have the steady state, we have a good budget, we can go ahead and
1: extend those out, and these programs will be a success. All right, and, of course, (laughs) with all that fun news that we just talked about before and more fun, I, I don't think that we can comment any more fun on this story. So let's go to something that was actually happy, and this was something that we were honored to be approached by Google to help out with. And something that, in the end, was pretty cool. Mark, do you want to take this one?
0: Sure. Let me uh, let me start out uh, by taking us back in time. We just talked about HTV deorbiting. Well, back when it arrived, there was some considerable excitement because there were a couple of young researchers who had science experiments going up to the station. And those experiments were recently completed in They involved – it was a collaboration to have competition from high school students around the world by NASA, ESA, and other sponsors. And they came up with this YouTube Space Lab competition. After the uh, submissions were pared down, there were two winning experiments that were chosen to be completed. And they got to see their results beamed down to Earth via a live streaming broadcast hosted by Bill Nye. Uh, I believe Sunny Williams conducted some of the experiment, experimental work, and one involved testing the, the virulence of bacteria. And the second was a uh, an experiment might inspire a, uh, a blockbuster: jumping spiders on a space station. A uh, young student from Alexandria, Egypt, Amir Mohammed, uh, wondered what would happen if the zebra jumping spider was taken miles from its natural environment. On Earth, the spider can leap on its prey, usually smaller insects, from great distances. But in microgravity, the trajectory of their jump would change dramatically. If the spider aimed where they usually do on Earth, they would simply keep flying through the air over their target. So, uh, yeah, this is quite interesting. And here's, here's three students. Uh, the other experiment with the bacteria was Dorothy Chen and Sarah Ma from Flint, Michigan. And they wanted to measure microgravity's effects on the virulence of a fungicide. They made some hypotheses that they would be more infectious, and they noted that the uh, student's hypothesis might be correct. They won't know for sure until they can experiment on the bacteria when it returns to Earth, however. So the global winners uh, for this competition, they got a trip to Washington, D.C. They got a zero-G flight aboard the infamous Vomit Comet. And uh, this is quite a story. I think it's pretty cool. Here you are, high school kids. Golly, if that had been me, I I think you'd have had to uh, tie an anchor to me to keep me from uh, jumping up there to get a better look.
2: I'm just thinking, I and mean, this is a this was a beautiful STEM project, and uh, it, this really really got kids interested and in in, uh, in science and math. And and what a grand prize to have a you know a zero g flight, but B. Have your experiment actually flown on, on the International Space Station and and performed while there? Um, that you know, wow! <laughs> and if that doesn't doesn't kindle a, a, a high school student's imagination, I don't know what does.
0: Yeah, I got to think of how excited I was. Uh, when was it, Gene? A year or so ago, that uh, down at KSC for the launch of MSL. Remember, we met the. Uh, the teenager who named the rover curiosity.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. She was, she she was incredible.
0: I I talked to her briefly after a press conference and also her family was there. And I said, I feel like I should have a t-shirt. I met Clara Ma and, uh, you know, that is so cool. I think that's, that's a great way to, uh, many great ways to include students and to show them just what's possible.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, um, uh, Clara you know a, again I think she was a little still a little bit overwhelmed by the entire experience that so was it was just awesome to 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 see her up there and and just t- China kind of taking it all in and she was absolutely unflappable with us you know us you know airheads in the press you know surrounding her so uh, hats off to her
0: and she's still in the news i mean you know that was from uh the launch of what uh, when was that pardon my poor memory november uh 25th? november correct just
2: after thanks the di- just after thanksgiving last year Yeah.
0: and so uh you know she's still in the news and here we are august and september very neat but back to uh the youtube space lab competition i venture to say that uh, these students have got some interesting days ahead because you know part of their project was uh was winning the competition and having it uh go to station. And, and of course, part of the rest of it is studying the results.
1: The power of introducing science to a young mind through technology is amazing. One of the many, as people say, that technology is hurting our generation. In that sense, I think this is really helping out our generation. I mean, between these online naming contests for NASA rovers all the way to, for example, the YouTube Space Lab, which is giving any student around the world the opportunity to through YouTube, to pitch their idea for an actual international space station experiment. And now, as we've seen, have it flown on board and get actual scientific results from it. I just think that is spectacular. No matter what people say about the Internet hurting our generation, I think it's also helping.
0: Yeah, and the stats for the contest was it was open to students 14 to 18 years old. They had to submit their entries, like you said, via a two minute YouTube video in the areas of physics or biology. They had over 2,000 entries from over 80 countries around the world. Woohoo!
2: And we still have to keep doing stuff like that to continue uh, igniting the imaginations of, of, uh, of young people and getting them involved in, in all this and showing them how really, really cool this, this stuff really can be.
0: No matter what the cost.
1: Alright, so we've made it to the final story, and I know for this last one we kind of switched the order of who did what, but at least we're getting the stories out, because I felt that this one, I think, needed to go last. And of course, as we've mentioned before, Neil Armstrong recently passed away at the age of 82. And on top of that, he was as well buried out at sea. And recently, though, in fact, this past week was a phenomenal tribute ceremony, right Gene? Yeah, this
2: was held at the uh, National Cathedral in Washington, um, D.C. Charlie Bolden gave his his tribute there and uh, uh, a couple other family friends. But uh, I think the most touching one that was given uh, was by a a friend of uh, uh, Neil Armstrong's, another astronaut, uh, Gene Cernan. Who was the last man to walk on the surface of the moon? Um, I'll be blunt. His, uh, I, I, I got choked up. I was, I was sort of trying to go ahead and let folks know what he was saying and so on via Twitter. But um, some of his commentary, you know, y- y- you really, really, really got choked up. And I think uh, Cernan basically really transmitted the essence of the man. Um, One of the he opened up by saying, you know,
0: how does one
2: adequately
0: Express his feelings about a special friend When that friend is also a world icon a national hero of unimaginable proportion And a legend whose name will live in history long after all here today had been forgotten. A friend whose commitment and dedication to that in which he believed was absolute. A man who, when he became your friend, was a friend for a lifetime.
2: And he basically really, really emphasized the humility of the man. He said it was never about him at all. He only considered himself uh, to quote uh, Cernan as the tip of the arrow, and he was always quick to c- give credit to the 400,000 people that supported him uh, during Apollo and supported uh, what uh, what he did. There was a moment of uh, of levity in 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 the, the the speech, though, which was kind of kind of fun. Uh, he recalled that um, somebody had asked him a question about. Uh, uh, the Apollo 11 approach, and as you know, they were basically running on fumes. And um, uh, Cernan recalls uh, Armstrong being asked about that and saying, "You know, what was your reaction when, when you thought about, uh, uh, you know, basically the spacecraft running out of fuel, and here you are, you know, above the lunar surface?" And Armstrong paused for a moment, and uh, Cernan sort of described Armstrong putting his finger to his to his lips and trying to think about this one as was sort of characteristic of him and i uh, said well you know when when that fuel light goes on in your car for instance you always know that you have like a one or two gallons of fuel left and that's sort of the way uh, he characterized that and uh, it got a good chuckle from from everybody out of the audience um it was just a very i mean it it, it was a very heart-wrenching send-off for an incredible human being somebody that uh I think we need more of we need more heroes like like uh, like Neil Armstrong. I mean, if you you look at you look at uh, what people hold up for heroes today, and uh, you know what what I held up as a hero, you know, growing up as a small child, uh, it was people like Cern and Armstrong, Jim Lovell, and and all the Apollo astronauts. Um, today, I, I look at the heroes that some of my you know some of my nephews hold up, and I'm like you know I, I shudder. Um, so, I, I think again we need more American heroes like like Neil Armstrong. So again, uh, Armstrong always considered himself a naval officer for, first and foremost, and also a uh, you know a card carrying pocket protecting protector uh, engineer first and foremost. And uh, again, it was a you know Cernan gave probably I I, I still think was was probably the the best tribute out over there because it was a a tribute from, from a dear friend that, uh, you know, they shared that, that went through the same, you know, Navy rigors and the same naval experiences. And again, the same experiences as being an astronaut. It's kind of funny. I have a print upstairs, um, called Naval aviation in space. And, uh, Cernan's signature and Armstrong's signature are literally right next to each other. And, uh, I was wondering if that was a serendipitous or not, if the, or if that was planned. But um, again, it was one—it was a dear tribute from a, from one dear friend to another.
1: One thing that was obvious, though, in Cernan's speech that I think was even more obvious than in Bolden's or anybody else who spoke. I think what was most obvious was how he was emotional throughout the whole thing, and it was more obvious. I mean, you could tell everybody that was there was you know somewhat upset, but they were commemorating a good man. You could tell that Cernan was honestly shook up at losing such a great friend, you know, like a golf buddy. And I, I just thought that his emotion and the speech that he gave with that emotion, just so much power. And honestly, I don't think that there were any dry eyes in the house after that.
2: I don't think there was a dry eye anywhere listening to that, Sawyer. I and I, I know personally I was a little, you know, I was getting a little choked up too listening to Cernan. And I don't think any anybody that was watching that on NASA television or, or listening to it, uh, uh, wasn't moved by that. I mean, that. how can you not? If you weren't, you weren't human in plain
1: English. Which I might add, the cathedral which it was held in actually does have a piece of a moon rock built into the stained glass.
2: That's correct, and that was actually given to the National Cathedral by the Apollo 11 astronauts.
1: I just figured we should probably mention that, and with that note, I think we should also end this episode. I'd like to thank everybody here who joined us. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Thank you, Sawyer. Always an honor. And thank you as well for joining us, Mark Rannerman.
0: I much appreciate uh, you guys and our listeners, and see you next time.
1: Yes, indeed. We do hope to maybe hear from you guys again soon, but if nothing else, we hope that you guys will hear us again next week and tune in. And, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.